welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everybody, to this particular episode of our Trailblazer series for the Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum. And today I'm joined by Andy Mason, Head of Strategic Partnerships and Housing at Lloyd's Banking Group. Andy joined Lloyd's Banking Group in 1993 and has experience in retail bank across financial planning, product development, implementation of new products and services to market, as well as helping to implement the response to the retail distribution review. He joined the mortgage team in 2015 and was responsible for the development of mortgage propositions in the residential and buy-to-let markets. He's closely involved in Lloyd's Banking Group's participation of the Help to Buy scheme and developing the environmental mortgage policy. He currently is the head of strategic partnerships and housing with responsibility for the housing development team. Also joining us is Rupi Hunjan. Rupi, what do you do? I'm Managing Director of Sensei Financial, a specialist mortgage provider in shared ownership. We set up about 16 years ago. Brilliant. So, Rupi, we discussed earlier. Let's go back to the start of things. Tell us about your childhood. I'm 53 now, so I was born to parents from Indian origin, came over in 1968, and brought up in Hounslow. Memories include bunk beds and a sofa bed. We all shared a room until I was about six. My sister, myself on a bunk bed, mum and dad on a sofa bed in a shared house. My uncle, aunt and a grandmother in Hounslow West, number 18, Rosemary Avenue. We were poor, but I think we were happy. And um, grew up in Hounslow, went to school there, went to a school called Lambton, which was a grammar. But by the time we finished, they turned it into comprehensive. Loved school, enjoyed it, had great fun, made lots of friends. On the diversity front, it was very diverse because we were next to Heathrow. It seemed like every Indian that ever came from India or Kenya ended up in our school. And we used to have football matches where it was quite funny. It was, well, it wasn't funny at the time, not now. Blacks versus whites because they didn't have any kits. So that was quite entertaining sometimes. It's interesting, Andy, because whilst you came from a completely different background and different geography, you also weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth, were you? Indeed. I was brought up in Yorkshire in a very much a working class family. We actually lived in the countryside in a lovely old cottage that was a wreck that my dad did up because he was a builder at the time. Subsequently, my parents went on to be, they owned a milk round, they went from pints of milk to pints of beer to become pub owners. And it was kind of a fairly frugal background. It was always a struggle to earn enough to get by. I had two brothers. I also went to school in a, in a pit village, Barrett, which was, you know, I was actually born in the same year as, as Rupee, 1968. And I was at school in a pit village at the time of the miners' strike. So a lot of my friends were directed through that period terribly badly, even to the fact of losing businesses, losing homes in the local village. So it was a tough time. It was a tough background. I do say I still feel a bit privileged compared to some of those people. So the miners' families were really, really suffering through that time. We, we were protected to an extent from that. 
but it, it certainly keeps me grounded thinking about where I am today. And Andy, we were discussing earlier that it was a largely Caucasian environment that you were in. There weren't that many people of colour around. And you do have some sort of thoughts and memories of the first Asian family to move into the village. Yeah, I do. You know, they're not great memories from their perspective. The new kid appeared in class and happened to be the first Asian in the whole school. His family had bought a little business in the village. And I just remember kids being kids. Anybody with any difference tends to get picked on, you know, no matter what the difference. And obviously this guy was completely different because he was the first Asian kid in the school. And he got a really tough time. Lots of people got a tough time. But I think in particular with this guy, because he's completely different, he had to be incredibly resilient, mentally tough and physically tough. It was a tough school. There were minus kids. He had to pull his weight, literally. I'm not sure where this guy ended up, but on reflection, you know, this isn't the kind of experience that you would want any of your children to have in a new school. I hope that times have changed, but I still think back to that guy and, and hope that he managed to get through it and has had a successful life beyond that. And do you now, looking back at both of you, sort of find the idea of a, a blacks versus whites football game a bit uncomfortable? Absolutely. It wasn't called for then. No one stopped it then. But then the era was different. I think since then there's been a lot of progress. And I, I welcome the progress. It's not perfect. I don't think it will ever be perfect. But at the time, it was the era. Everyone kind of accepted it. Everyone got on with it. That was life. We didn't know any better. But there were people trying to bully us. There was all sorts going on. But we stood up for ourselves and carried on. But do you think it sort of helped you in the fact that it was a very mixed school? And that there was, you know, from what you sort of like say, 60-40, 50-50 mixture of sort of ethnicities there. I think it does because you grow up with two cultures, two languages, two ways of thinking. You have empathy and sympathy for each other. You make some good friends, you make some bad friends. Yeah, it's mixed. It's a variety. It can't do you any harm. I think when you've got too many of one, it breeds a little bit of too much ignorance. As shown by sort of Andy's story early on. Andy, just your view now, you're looking back very empathetically and sympathetically to what happened to the young chap at your school. Do you also now actually find the idea of a, a white versus blacks football game repugnant? Yeah, it sounds terrible. It sounds incredibly divisive, doesn't it, frankly? You know, it's interesting. I've got a really early memory, Rupi, of we did a rugby tour and the Asian guy in the team actually was a great rugby player. We toured to East Acton in London and that was a proper eye-opener to these guys that were calling the Asian guy names, etc. Because most of the team in London were Asian kids. It was a proper eye-opener. And believe it or not, we actually did a, a swap where we went to stay in their houses and vice versa in Yorkshire. And I think that was a great experience for a lot of the kids that were in that rugby team, just to see a different culture and look at something completely different. Andy, that would have been vice versa as well for Indian kids. It works both ways. And I think that assimilation doesn't do anyone any harm. Shall we move on to your higher education now? Because you both very proudly went to polytechnics, which were a great invention. And Rupi, you chose to do a course in which you were the only brown face on that course. And even now, I don't think there's that many people would do estates management as a chosen degree. What led you there? And what was it like being the only brown face on your course? It's funny, we went to a polytechnic, but it did turn into university by the end of it. What led us there? I think most kids my age, back in about 88 in Hounslow, wanted to leave home because Indians were generally oppressed at home. And we went anywhere, Polytechnic University. But most of my friends went on to do medicine or law. The family did more law, medicine, accounting. And I liked estate management because it led to property to become a surveyor. And Birmingham Poly was the place to go. 
well, one of the places to go that in Bristol. So I ended up there, but I ended up being the only Indian in the course. It didn't really make any difference. I, I welcomed it. It was the first time I really met English people and hung out with them because we didn't growing up. And that's what people don't realize. Indians growing up or black people growing up stick in their own communities as well. But coming out to Birmingham, growing up, I had a great time. In fact, I had such a good time. They threw me out after the first year and I had to go back and retake. So um, went there, came out with a 2-2. But during the time, we lived in a house where there was a black guy, a Jewish guy, an English guy from Kent, and half Greek guy. And we're all from London, though. We all live together. We're still friends today. The thing is, I think it taught us to be colorblind, being in that environment. And the degree, most of the people on my course were white, middle class, a lot of double-barreled names. And it was an eye-opener for me. I got asked the stupid questions like, do you use knife and fork at home? How many people live in your house? That type of thing. But it was ignorance, nothing else. I got similar questions at university sometimes. How did you sort of take it so lightly? How did you not in any way take offence? I think because I knew there wasn't malice there a lot of the time. I think you don't take it lightly if someone's being aggressive. And you know when someone's being nasty, these people are nice people. They weren't being nasty, just asking silly questions because they didn't know any better. I wasn't going to be offended by it. I just told them the answer. How did they react to you telling them that you usually ate food with your hands? Well, I didn't really. But no, it, it, I taught them how to eat food with their hands every time we went to an Indian restaurant. Yeah, we'd go to an Indian restaurant and be speaking Punjabi. Yeah, it was totally accepted by my group of friends. Andy, due to your sort of like tertiary education experience, did you have a nice mix of people? Is that the place where you actually broadened your horizons in terms of the kind of people you met? I feel almost ashamed to say, well, well no, it wasn't because every single person was white. I was thinking back, there were very, very few non-white people in, in and around all of the stuff that I did, whether it was play football, I didn't share a house with anybody other than white people. So it felt, on reflection, it was incredibly undiverse, sheltered. It wasn't a broadening experience at all. I mean, Newcastle is, to an extent, still a little bit like that. No, it, it wasn't great, it wasn't diverse. Rupi, you told me you graduated as a surveyor right in the middle of one of the worst property crashes in history and you couldn't get a job. So you went into financial services. What attracted you to financial services? Was it just absolute desperation because nobody else would give you a job? Or did you think, hey, this is the kind of thing I can do? I graduated with a 2-2, came out, and it was 92. The property market crashed or was crashing. thought, now what? I've just got a property degree. And I got into financial services by accident, really, like most people. I looked at surveying and I thought, hmm, don't fancy that really. What should I do? And I ended up going to a graduate recruitment fair in Angel, Islington. And they were doing psychometric tests. There was General Portfolio, Laurentia Milden, City Financial, and one other. And I was walking around doing a quiz. And he did this psychometric test. And basically, the answer came back and told me I was pretty useless at most things apart from selling insurance. So I thought, okay. Went along to the seminars they were holding back in 92, we get a group of people and someone come along and tell you how great a career financial services was. But the thing that attracted me most was guys standing up saying, look, your colour, creed or class doesn't matter. We run a meritocracy. The harder you work, the further you can go. And it's a judge by results environment. And I joined a firm called City Financial Partners and started at the bottom as a trainee, started my career there. So I joined financial services for that reason. I thought, okay, I've seen the politics and the prejudices and everything else that can go against you. I always wanted to be 
in business, always wanted to be self-employed. And this was a good hybrid where I worked in a corporate structure, but in a self-employed way, building my own client base and business. And I built a relatively successful wealth management firm, which I still have running, in fact. And that's 32 years ago. And Andy, you went from a graduate trainee program with Sainsbury's, but you moved over to Black Horse Financial Services as a financial advisor. So what led you to make that sort of jump over? The Sainsbury's experience was a really good one, actually. And, you know, the training was fantastic. It, you know, basically the walk a mile in somebody's shoes approach. So I, I ended up working on checkouts. I ended up being a fishmonger, you know, store security, all those kind of things. So it was a really good grounding. The problem with retail was you almost had to be anywhere in the country at the drop of a hat. And, you know, it wasn't great from a stability perspective. So I took the opportunity to think, what is it that I'm good at? What do I like? And what, what does my lifestyle need as well? It was at the time when things like Sunday opening and 24-hour opening was coming into retail. So it was incredibly challenging. So I thought about it and financial advice with a bank seemed a good thing. I was good at talking to people. Financial advice was quite interesting and they presented a really good career path. If you could get yourself into the door, you could work your way through into the organization. And similar to Rupi, that was the best part of 30 years ago. So it turned out to be a great move. That's great. And so Rupi, now let's move on to you starting Sensio. So run me through, here you are, you worked at City Financial and you've got your own client base. You're running a nice little business. When did the move to mortgages happen and how did it happen and what first made you think, hey, I can start my own company? About 16 years ago, I run the wealth management business and someone approached me and said, listen, do you do mortgages? I said, no. He said, okay, we've got 700 properties a year to sell. And it was the CEO of a rather large housing association called Genesis. He said, I need someone to build us a bespoke mortgage company. So I built it for him. And we started with a blank piece of paper. And the mantra was, why would anyone say no to using us? And we built that business purely for Genesis. The problem was it was 2008, 2007, when we started building it. And then the credit crunch happened. But it wasn't, I mean, but since the credit crunch, we've had Brexit, COVID, and now we've got Putin. So it's always been hard. But we built the specialist because I actually believed in the concept of shared ownership, which they pioneered. And they had a proposition where someone would come along to buy a new build and they'll send them out to find a mortgage broker, send them out to find a lawyer. And then they'd had a group of people called Progression that'd be shouting at lawyers and mortgage brokers all day long. And that was their job. We built a business which brought the market to the product instead of pushing the product out to the market. We had a market, they came to us, vertically integrated with them, a one-stop shop to do everything. And that model's been replicated throughout the industry now, especially in new build shared ownership. So we started that purely because I thought that's a good business opportunity to build. 2008, the credit crunch happened. Their 700 build program dropped to 200 odd. In that first year, we saved them about 940,000 pounds, I was told, because of the integration. And then we went out to market and took on more and more housing associations. Currently, I think we're one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the UK, just looking after shared ownership. But we built a totally different type of model, market to product, where even today, we our primary clients are housing association, but we do have a primary customer that we all look after as well. I'd like to explore, and with Andy's opinion as well, a bit about shared ownership, because it is deemed to be specialist, but you sort of threw at me in a recent conversation the term 
financial inclusion and how important shared ownership is in that framework. Andy, would you like to sort of like just tell me how important financial inclusion is in terms of a buzz phrase uh, at the places like Lloyds Banking Group at the moment? Because you guys play a very, very big role in shared ownership. And, and I know you are a big champion of it as a proposition. Absolutely. Financial inclusion is massive from a Lloyds Banking Group perspective. And I think we've all got a, a social responsibility, actually. Barrow, we talked about privilege. And I think if we're not careful, privilege breeds privilege, a bit like money makes money. You end up in an environment where you don't have a real view of what life's all about. You just have your sphere of influence and you forget that there are people in the UK who are genuinely really struggling financially. And I think home ownership is actually one of the biggest enablers of wealth and social mobility in, in anybody's life. So the, the fact that people genuinely struggle to get out of private rent, social rent and, and buy their own home is a massive disadvantage to people. Renting for the whole of your life can cost, you know, we've done some calculations, more than a million pound extra to the person over and above the person that pays for their own property over 25 years. So it's massive in terms of people's lives. And the big problem is that it's difficult to save a deposit to buy a house. And it's also a lot of people will never have an income big enough to buy the whole of a house. Uh, because they can't get a mortgage big enough. So what, what Rupi is doing on shared ownership is fantastic because put yourself in the situation. W- would you rather rent a home for the rest of your life and own none of it or at least own a bit of it? You know, because owning a bit of it, it certainly means you've, you're building up an asset. It means you're benefiting from some growth in the house price. You're paying off your mortgage. So you don't feel like you're trapped in this rental trap for the whole of your life, which can be incredibly disheartening and stressful for people. So it's massively important, shared ownership and what Rupi does. And Rupi, do you get a big buzz out of knowing that the people that you're helping, there's very unlikely any other way other than shared ownership and using your services and interacting with housing associations that they could actually get on the property ladder. Oh, fantastic. We don't do mortgages, we help people into homes. It's now a bona fide asset class and residential property is seen as an asset class. So why not buy a slice of that asset? You've got people out there wanting to get onto the property ladder because it gives them financial inclusion. We've been helping them for years and we've helped thousands of people into homes. And what I find, your shared ownership owner is usually, I I spent a lot of time in wealth management. The people are nicer. The people we meet, we help people get mortgages, help people get home. They're usually nicer, they're great buzzer. Every month we're helping over a thousand people on the road to home ownership, be it through an assessment or a mortgage. It's lovely. You got a lot of nice energy back from people when you get them into a I do actually remember a strange man called Paul Merrigan who ran a mortgage operation and a wealth services operation. And he just said, at Christmas, all the Christmas cards came to the mortgage guys. The wealth management people got absolutely rock all. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can imagine that to be very true. So, Rupi, it, it, it's interesting that coming from the ethnic background you've got, you've built a very diverse team around you. Is that because you went out? to build a diverse team or do you think in shared ownership where you're meeting a much more potentially diverse group of customers than say you would be if you were a high-end London-based mortgage broker you're responding to customer needs or was it your intention to say I'm going to build a diverse team or was it a mixture of the two? Definitely wasn't my intention. And our offering at the beginning was prestige office opposite the Lloyds building in the city. So we bought shared ownership up a level because everyone thought it was for blue collar workers. So I built a diverse team because the first people we took on were of color and we used what I called a matrix. We judged them on merit. We run a meritocracy. Right now, we've got 30 people around the country. They're KPI'd and there are no politics. 50% of my team comes from what you call BAME, 48% are female, 
10% are disabled. We give to a charity for the homeless that concentrate on LBGTQ+, which makes up 24% of young homeless. And we only recruit on merit. If you work hard, got the qualifications, we'll give you a chance. And if you perform, you stay. And if you don't, you end up leaving yourself. And it's not a tough environment or anything, but I grew up in a meritocracy. I've been self-employed, never had a pay slip. So I believe if you do well, you take the credit. If you do badly, you take the blame. And there shouldn't be any movement. There shouldn't be any issues if you try to run a business that way. And the people I interviewed, there were a lot of good people who came in of colour, females. We just recruited and we still do on whether we think they can fit and they can do the job. And it works for those people as well. That seems like a fairly decent philosophy, Andy. Why do you think it's not adopted across the whole of the industry? I think we're trying to, Barrett. I think, you know, especially a place like Lloyd's, you have to accept that you're coming from a certain start point. And I guess the benefit, and I'll ask Rupi, with setting up from scratch, Rupi, were you able to establish that mix of backgrounds, people, you know, ethnicity from scratch? Or, or is it something that you've kind of adapted over time to reflect the kind of customers that you deal with? The customers who deal with, we can empathise with them a lot better. In London, there's a mixed variety of customers coming in. But I remember, you know, when we first did, like Anthony's been with me 15 years, he came across really well in an interview, so we gave him a job. And then he's worked hard. There's other people that have been with me on the journey. And I really do believe if you behave in a way where you can judge someone, because it's very simple. If you can measure something, you measure it. So the model works in a way that everything can be measured and everything can be monitored. And everyone knows what they need to do. And it's interesting, Rupi, because I think what you said there is that the people in your team broadly reflect the people that they deal with. I think, Barrett, what might help is for, for more of our industry to kind of experience what Rupi's experienced, because I, I do worry that I'll use my kind of product history as an experience. We recruit a lot of people from university, from certain universities, ex-consultants. When you talk about things like shared ownership and social inclusion, a lot of those people have no concept in reality of what the life is like for somebody in circumstances completely different to them. I think it, sharing experiences like Rupi's firm should definitely encourage people to think much more about the makeup of the teams and the makeup of meetings that they're walking into does this represent the people our customers we want to talk to but you're edging towards a who in this room knows the price of a pint of milk i guess so i think in our industry andy there's a lot of problems where people read a cv and say no we interview most people that we get a cv for and a lot of people don't get the opportunity for an interview even i think what needs to happen is not necessarily give people of color given the job on merit but make sure they at least get interviewed. I think, Rupi, what you're heading towards, which I'm a big supporter of, is, is blind CVs. And I think one of the things that the Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Focus Forum has done is to make more companies more aware of the importance of take a look at the CV, take away the name, take away the university, and have a look at the person. I think you're right, but the other thing I would add, though, is it, it seems like Rupi's kind of been really proactive. I think we all have to try harder. It's not good enough anymore just to have a, a short list of people and say, well, we, we tried to tick the DNI box, but, you know, we ended up with a short list of four blokes because we didn't get enough people applying. I think we all need to be more deliberate. And what Rupi did was to say, I'm interviewing this person who fits the profile for my team fantastically. We're going to reach out and offer them a job. And I wonder when the last time somebody in the bank ever, basic bank accounts, ever employed somebody that they were interviewing for a basic bank account. I suspect none of our employees have a basic bank account. But I'd also feel that this thing tokenism's wrong. 
as well. I mean, if you're only making up 15% of the population and you need to fill 50% of your firm with a quota, the maths doesn't make sense, does it? So you need to be sensible as well and not just give jobs to people all because you're trying to do a quota or tokenism. It has to be on, they can actually do the job. If they can't do the job, they shouldn't be there. Indeed. But I'd also think it's a different problem at different levels, I think, Andy. Do you not agree that you can always find a more diverse group of people at the most junior levels? Where the diversity ameliorates is when you get to senior levels and board jobs. That's when suddenly you go, all right, we all started off with a nice mix of men, women, women, people of underrepresented backgrounds and people with visible and non-visible disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But by the time we get to the board, it's 12 white guys. So I, I do think that the, the issues need to be addressed at different levels. So but that, that should be easy. You know, if let's assume we start with the right mix of people at the low levels, to your point, the proactive point becomes much easier there. These people already work for the firm. It must be so much easier to start to kind of nurture, help, support, encourage people from a diverse background through the ranks. You know, they're working for the company. So why, why can't we do that? I think it's more about the kind of, as I said before, we've got to be more proactive here whether it's you know gender mix or disability mix we've got to try and encourage people if we don't see them coming forward for roles that we think are suitable a bit like Rupi did let's ask them to come forward let's explain why they'd be good at the job let's not just be reactive on well they didn't apply so therefore we didn't get anybody that's a great sentiment Andy and I have to say as a big shout out to Lloyd's Banking Group certainly on the mortgage side your guys are fantastically diverse with Jas leading the team and, and fantastic people like Esther involved as well so I think Lloyds are actually walking the walk on this one and should be very proud of what they're doing. So we've touched on there. What more is there to do? What else do you think that we should be doing both on the lender and the advisor side to actually get more people at that senior table, at the top table from more diverse backgrounds, etc.? And I know, Rupi, you have a great awareness of, of the issues around neurodiversity, which we'll be touching on in later events and podcasts. But do you think you've done enough or are you constantly challenging yourself to do better? What, personally? Personally and for Sensio. I think we naturally did it. We weren't consciously trying to do anything because I think businesses are there. We're there to be a profitable business, pay our taxes, employ more people and help the economy that way. Other issues have to come from a higher level sometimes. I think we're just stepping stones. We're an SME. We're growing. And it's a start, isn't it? We've only been here 50 years. It takes a bit of time. We don't have these issues in IT, for example. I think people will be coming onto the board in banks and at higher levels as they filter through. But I do feel that when I got a job in retail financial services, my father turned around and said, bloody hell, you're selling insurance. Here we go, right? It's still seen as a sector with the ethnic minorities of, you don't want to go into that, get a proper job. I did a degree in biochemistry, and then I went into publishing and was selling advertising and other things. And, and after we'd sold our company and had done quite well, one of my relatives said, so now you've sold your company, are you going to now get a job using your degree? And that sort of summed up that sort of generation of people from the subcontinent. We've got so much opportunity in what we do right now. There's so many opportunities for good people that we just need to encourage people to come into the industry from all backgrounds. So many of my colleagues now have their children working for those businesses around the country. And Andy knows some of them. And they're doing exceptionally well. The children coming through as graduates, coming into retail, FS. And I think that's where we need to start at the universities and talking about career, not in banking, but in wealth management with mortgages, 
there's a massive industry there that we should be attracting. Don't go down that traditional route of being a lawyer, a doctor, or an accountant, or a dentist. Dentistry was really popular at one point. Take a look at this, because it's not a bad career. And I don't think people get into this career, they don't apply. Andy, do you think that's the way forward? We've actually got to make our industry more widely known and more attractive to more people? Definitely. It's been a great career for me. Great place to work. As you said, Barrett, Lloyds have got a very progressive DNI policy, but even so, it's got to be a constant thought, really. I think we need to do more to consistently challenge. If you're walking into a room of non-diverse seven blokes in a meeting, let's think about that. The thing is, in Lloyds, so many people around the organisation recruit. Everybody needs to be on their game all of the time here, thinking about potential biases, thinking about how we can attract the right mix of people. What is the right mix of people? And I think the other point there, uh, Rupee, was just to try and understand what are the barriers in people people's minds, whether they're perceived or real barriers, and just have good, positive conversations to, first of all, understand, and hopefully to remove the barriers, or hopefully to remove the misconceptions about the industry. Because we need to encourage people. People may, to your point, shy away or be steered away from what is such a fantastic industry that's, uh, that's looked after us for 30 years, Rupi, frankly. So I think it's constant, Barrett. We all need to think of it all of the time. I can't help but agree with you. Rupi? I think the barriers in the past was because it was a commission-only life insurance salesman job, and it had a bad name. But now, most of the jobs pay a basic, plus performance. It's a good career that way. Before it was sales, pure sales. And sales was always something that was frowned upon by a lot of the community. But now I don't think it is sales. I think it's pure advice. There's no cleverness, no tricks or anything. It's a great industry. It's a very clean industry. The FCA, FSA, they've done a good job at keeping everyone's noses clean. And if you work hard, keep your nose clean, you can go all the way here. And what it needs people to come in, work hard, stay focused, be willing to be accountable, rise above any prejudices. We had growing up packy bashing and skinheads and all sorts going on. Now you've got unconscious bias and microaggression. There's nothing that people can't handle. If someone gives you any grief, give it back. Stand up for yourself. And the rest of the world have caste systems and genocidal tendencies. It's okay. Don't be a victim. Get on with it. Take a look. When you're looking around for a job, be encouraged to take a look at this sector, which, I mean, mortgages, it's a £400 billion sector, and it's a great place to be. Thinking about more and more, i got two boys, one's 17, one's 19, both one's at university, one's doing his A-levels. I'd encourage them to join this sector. That's a fantastic thing to do. If they do half as well as their old man, they will have done very well indeed. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being so honest. Thank you for sharing some very personal stuff for people. And I just echo everything you've said, which is this is a great industry to work for, but the people that work in it have got to constantly be on the lookout for talent and to be selling the industry and making more people aware of how good it is. And Rupi, you're absolutely right. For those people from underrepresented backgrounds, as you were at university as being the only one, don't take it as something that you should be ashamed of grasp it as a virtue and make yourself special and don't be a victim and carry on and on that note thank you Andy thank you Rupee and we will see everybody next time thank you very much if you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode